Well, join me in standing as we arise this morning to read a sermon text. And if you don't have a Bible with you, it's always a good thing to have one open as we study God's Word together. So you can grab it in a chairback Bible that should be in front of you. And you'll find this morning's text on page 100, page 932. Uh, we're going to make our way all the way through the end of chapter 23 this morning. But most of our time will be spent really through verse 11 of chapter 23. So let me start our reading this morning by picking up where we left off two weeks ago. That's the last verse of chapter 22. So chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 11. And then I'll pray and we'll begin our study together. So listen now as the Lord does speak to you once again through his perfect word. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, as I have lived my life before God, in all good conscience to this day, when the high priest Ananias he commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord Jesus stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we do acknowledge this morning that you are the sovereign creator of the universe, that you reign over our very hearts in the room this day, and we ask that you would speak to us by the powerful word that you have set before us, that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this truth, that we might know what it means to take courage, that we might find comfort in the promise and purpose that's found in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Or oh, you may be seated. At a former church where I served as a youth pastor, there was a Sunday school teacher that had a few daughters at at that stage of life, and they were in college. And so he was at that stage of life as a dad where 
Uh, every so often, eligible bachelors would arrive at his house asking for permission to uh, date one of the girls. And he loved to tell the story uh, that whenever such a suitor would come over, uh, instead of giving a yes or no to the question of, can I take your daughter out on a date? He would say, well, when can you play a round of 18 holes at the golf course with me? And the young man would look at him rather quizzically. And then this man in our church would say something to the effect of, I believe it's not until you've played a round of golf with an individual that you can truly see the depths of his character. <laughs> Especially if he plays poorly, of course, was the point. And uh, swinging the sticks and around like that might not reveal anything terribly deep about your character. Uh, but it's quite true that you could find yourself in any number of situations that would have a peculiar power in revealing the depths of your character. So some of you, you know, I could take and just plop into a traffic jam, unexpected and undesired, and we would see uh, the degree of your growth and patience, wouldn't we? I could place others of you in a gaggle of rowdy children and figure out your growth in forbearance and tenderness to the little ones. Or perhaps you could find yourself in the midst of an organization or even a congregation like our own. You'll find a, a leadership decision has been made and it's one with which you disagree. Well, then we would be able to see, can you disagree without dividing? There's this central maxim that belongs to humanity, isn't it? That crises tend to reveal a person's character. Now, what would happen if you were facing what the Apostle Paul was facing in our text today? This crisis, one after another. Uh, we will find him early on in our text today. He, he's being lashed to a pole. His back has been laid bare, and he's soon about to be flogged. All the skin on his back was intended to be ripped off in order that he might know what it means to answer questions from a Roman interrogation. Or what would you do if religious compatriots would conspire against you, uh, desiring to get their hands bloody with blood from your own face and body. Now, what would you do if you were utterly certain that just in a few months' time, maybe even a few years' time, you would be martyred, kids, you would be killed for your faith in Jesus Christ? What kind of character would such crises reveal in you? Well, we want to see, of course, the kind of character that the Apostle Paul has this morning as he responds to the trials that he faces in our text. But more significantly, I want you to see by the end how the Lord Jesus Christ responds to his suffering servant, of course, who is the Apostle Paul. So when we were last in Acts two weeks ago, we left off in chapter 22. And near the end of that chapter, where Paul had had a rather eventful day in his life in Jerusalem. He had been undergoing these purification rites there at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jews who hated him, Jews that wanted to see him dead, they found him undergoing these rites in the temple. And they created this scene. They dragged him out of the temple. They had these trumped-up charges that they lobbed against him. And they began to beat him within an inch of his life. And then hearing about this ruckus, the Roman garrison that was nearby at the fortress Antonia, they raced down and tried to bring law and order to the chaos there at the scene there at the temple. Uh, they dragged Paul away. And as he was uh, being dragged away, what you'll notice if you can glance back to the end of chapter 21 is that he speaks to this uh, Roman garrison. 
uh, actually the Roman tribune as he's basically on the steps to the Roman barracks nearby the temple. And he says, hey, can I speak to the people? And so he begins to speak in Hebrew, a defense to this murderous mob that only minutes before had been trying to kill him. And he begins to recount his spiritual autobiography. And everything was okay when the Apostle Paul was talking about meeting Jesus Christ on a road to Damascus. Everything was okay when he was referring to the Lord's command that he be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Everything was okay when he called Jesus Christ the righteous one. But everything fell apart when he recalled a word from the Lord that said, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And if you glance back to the end of chapter 22, verse 22 through 29, it was at this point that they said, Away with this man. He doesn't deserve to live. They're throwing up dust and this sign of judgment uh, against him. They request that he be interrogated via flogging. So as he was being bound to this pole, as his back was soon going to be laid bare in flogging, a, an interrogation by torture technique that the Romans had perfected, to such a degree, oftentimes the person being interrogated would die from the flogging, uh, Paul just glances over at the Roman tribune and says something like, are you really going to do this to a Roman citizen? Because they thought he was just an ordinary Israelite. And it's just that simple question that puts a pause on everything, and he's taken into the Roman barracks, and we pick up the story. You'll notice the beginning of verse 30 in chapter 22 on the next day. And the central verse in our text is the one where we ended our reading, which is verse 11, where Jesus Christ stands before Paul. The following night is really about what it is, and he says, take courage. I know exactly where you're going and exactly what you must do, and I'm going to be faithful to bring you to where you're going and faithful to bring you to be obedient to what you must do. And so the simple theme that I want you to see along the way this morning is how you can take courage in God's sovereignty. Everything in Paul's life, as we're going to see in notable ways today, is working out exactly how the Lord has intended it. All the way back in his original commission to Paul in Acts chapter 9, uh, the Lord Jesus said to Paul that you are my chosen instrument to proclaim my name, to carry my name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. And it's that middle category that we find Paul actually doing in these chapters. He's proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ to kings, to governing authorities, to magistrates in the land, the man who was a church planter, the man who was a gospel preacher, now really for the next four chapters is just a prisoner on constant defense in courtrooms. And it's a defense in courtrooms that leads to him declaring the truth of Jesus Christ, that everything is happening in our text today in order that Paul might preach to kings. God is sovereignly orchestrating everything so Paul gets to where God says he must go. And kids, one of the basic lessons, certainly one of the most beautiful lessons uh, that you need to learn early on in your life in Jesus Christ is that the Lord controls everything. He, he cares for his people in such a way that nothing that happens to them is outside of his sovereign plan for them. And of course, sometimes that's going to mean when you face hardship and difficulty, perhaps not like what Paul faced so many centuries ago, but nonetheless, when you face hardship and difficulty, you too, like Paul, can take courage knowing that God is using it 
to bring about His sovereign purpose in your life. So I'm going to want you to see four different things over which God reigns sovereign according to chapter 23, and we'll begin, of course, at the end of chapter 22. The first of this, first of which is this. He's sovereign over the opposition. Because notice again, verse 30 in chapter 22, is on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, Claudius Elysius unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. He brought Paul down and set him before them. And so this would have been something like uh, the Roman leader there in Jerusalem, recognizing that this chaos, this constant disorder was coming through this man named Paul. And he, of course, is there to set law and order in business there in Jerusalem. And so he's trying to figure out why is there this constant mob-like reality surrounding Paul. The previous day, he had given his defense to the Jews. But it seems as though Claudius Lysias, this Roman tribune, he didn't understand anything that Paul had said. Paul was preaching in Hebrew, the text actually told us. And so the next day, he calls together the gathering of the Sanhedrin, which was like the Supreme Court there in Israel. And he's basically wanting to find out, what is Paul doing that's creating all of this problem? Hence why he can tell us, of course, at the end of verse 30, that he set Paul before them. And the text is going to go on to make clear that it's only because Paul being set before them that he gets into Roman care, that gets him eventually to preach the gospel in Rome, that we can actually say that God, of course, is sovereign over the opposition. Uh, that God has stirred up all of this murderous mob in Paul's life to do many things, but no doubt, according to our text, the central thing that God's doing is he's stirring up all the opposition in order to get Paul to Rome. I wonder what kind of opposition and difficulty uh, you might even be facing in your life. And what kind of courage you might be able to take this coming week, recognizing that along with Paul's life, you can say too, the Lord's in charge of all of that. All of that opposition, all that difficulty, all that suffering, all that hardship. Well, God's actually using it. Not just for my good, but ultimately for His glory, His perfect plan to come to pass in my life. So he's sovereign over the opposition. I want you to see, secondly, that he's sovereign over uh, the declaration. Because notice what happens in verse 1 of chapter 23, looking intently at the council, Paul began to speak. So students, you want to picture the scene there. Uh, Paul would have spent the previous day in this Roman garrison, as I mentioned earlier, that was known as the Fortress Antonia. Would have been that morning as Claudius Lysias calls together the Sanhedrin, uh, Paul would have uh, marched out some 500 meters to where the Sanhedrin would have gathered. A Sanhedrin, again, it's the Supreme Court there in Jerusalem. It's about 70 leaders strong. They would have been seated in a semicircle. It's the, the powerful religious elite in the land are, are going to sit there in judgment upon Paul. And this is a murderous mob that only the day before was certainly a part of those trying to beat Paul to death. You know, kids, you, you might think of as Earnest as a Rottweiler wants to devour a piece of red meat. Such was the earnestness of, of this council's desire to kill Paul. And what Luke wants to underscore from the very beginning, if you glance down again at verse 1, is Paul's not scared at all about it. He uses the phrase, doesn't he? He, he looked intently. He looked at the whites of their eyes. You now, the rest of the New Testament makes pretty clear to us that Paul almost assuredly was pretty small in stature for that time. Uh, but he always, when he faced opposition for the gospel, he was a man that 
stood tall in the Lord. And you'll see what he says as he begins his defense there before the Sanhedrin. Verse 1 continues, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Uh, So you might want to ask, why is it that Paul begins with his conscience? Uh, Why would the Sanhedrin care about his conscience? Knowing that the Roman tribune, Lysias, is listening, why would Lysias care about his conscience? Well, for a first century Jew to hear what they just heard from Paul, it was nothing more than Paul saying, I am not guilty of the charges that are against me. My, My conscience is clean. I have obeyed the Lord's law All my life, I am following the Lord Jesus Christ in in faithfulness and obedience. I'm not guilty of all of these charges that I've committed heresy against Moses' law or sacrilege against the temple. So offensive was Paul's clean conscience to the Sanhedrin. Notice Ananias' command in verse 2 that those who would stand by Paul need to strike him on the mouth. And something about Ananias in this moment is quite instructive for us to note, one of which is that Ananias was like a mob leader in ancient Jerusalem. He was like a mafia don in the city of God. He was said to be so full of corruption that eventually it came to bite him, and he was killed early on in his life. And he takes great offense, Ananias does, to what he counts as Paul's clean conscience as blasphemy. Because what's Paul been doing? Uh, We know by this point the Jews are so angry with Paul because he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of a risen king, the gospel of forgiveness of sins, the gospel that no longer uh, do you need to understand that you have to obey the law for righteousness before God, but it's by faith alone that someone is justified. How dare you stand before me, the high priest says. And say, you of all people have lived with a clean conscience. Sanhedrin's response is swift enough, and so is Paul's. Notice verse 3. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So you see, students, he's not responding physically, is he? But I want you to see that he's responding prophetically. I mean, I've heard no small number of sermons on this text in throughout the years of my life, I suppose, and, and read any number of commentaries that basically say what Paul does in verse 3 is commit sin against his leaders, breaking the fifth commandment. But it seems to totally be unaware of how the phrase whitewashed wall is used in the Bible. It was a favorite of prophets speaking to self-righteous hypocrites in Israel. You'll find someone like Ezekiel declaring it of the leaders in Israel in his day. You may know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself calls down upon the Sadducees and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, a prophetic denunciation. You are nothing more than a whitewashed wall. Kids, what's a whitewashed wall? But uh, simply something that's made beautiful on the outside. It's totally rotten on the inside. And it's a way in which these prophets would say, yeah, you, you think you're great. And on the outside, Ananias, you look majestic, you look beautiful, you look royal in your robes and priestly garb. But what your heart has is nothing more than a rotten rebellion and rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I suppose you would agree with me that many in the church today, perhaps even decades-long church members, don't realize that 
They can be quite like Ananias and be whitewashed walls, uh, cultivating this reputation of devotion to the Lord, outwardly known as a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. Yet on the inside, what uh, seems to be so palpably present all the time is anger, is bitterness, other secret sins that have gone unconfessed and unmortified. It's, of course, a prophetic denunciation that is not something the religious leaders there in the Sanhedrin are eager for them to hear lobbed at their high priest. So they say in verse 4, you'll see, why do you you think you can revile God's high priest? And Paul quizzically says, doesn't he, in verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. It's a statement that continues to mystify people. How Paul could actually not know that Ananias, the one to whom he uttered this prophetic denunciation, was the high priest. How didn't he know that? Well, some people would say because the letter to the Galatians makes clear that Paul had bad eyesight and he had been gone from Jerusalem for something like 20 years at this point, that he didn't know. He couldn't see that it was Ananias that had made the command and told those lackeys to strike him in the face. Uh, that's certainly possible. I suppose it's possible that maybe the interpretation that sees Paul as committing some sort of sin in verse 3 against his uh, leaders is finding something of a sincere expression of repentance in, in verse 5. Uh, but I think what's much more likely in verse 5 is that uh, what Paul is engaging in, if we could have this kind of uh, ancient way of, of hearing tone in the text, uh, you would probably, uh, I think, hear sarcasm and irony in his word in, in verse 5. Uh, it might sound something like this. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Him? High priests don't act like him. High priests don't command like him. High priests aren't corrupt like him. High priests aren't demanding that others meet the law that he doesn't even meet. He's a high priest. Who knew? Well, whatever the reason is, he's, of course, whipping up what? More of their hatred, more of their ire, more of their antagonism. So what Paul does in verse 6 through 9 now is basically engage in an ancient military tactic. Uh, some of you might know if you pay attention to bestseller lists and may have heard of this book before that still, even centuries, many centuries after it was published, is always in the top 10 of military manuals. It seems to always be top 50 or so in, in leadership books. It's this ancient military manual called The Art of War uh, by Sun Tzu. And he's got this section in there where he talks about uh, the kind of normal requirements and military strategy for attacking an enemy. So he says something like, if, if you outnumber your enemy 10 to 1, surround them. If you outnumber them 5 to 1, just attack them outright. If you only outnumber them 2 to 1, though, you need to divide them in, in order to conquer them. And what Paul now does in verse 6 and following is engage in this ancient form of divide and conquer. Because you'll see the theological tripwire he sets up in verse 6. He perceived that one part were the Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council... Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it's with respect to the hope, the resurrection of the dead, that I'm on trial. So you need to know something, don't you, about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these rival parties in Israel at the time. It would be right to understand there in Jerusalem that the Sadducees were the majority party, Pharisees were the minority party. 
the Sadducees kind of belong to the priestly aristocracy. Pharisees, it's just the kind of common scribes that would have been found in Israel. And pertinent to this passage is that the Sadducees, they had no eschatology. All that means is they didn't believe in anything after death. It just was over once you died. And importantly, the Pharisees, well, they believed in life after death, that there was a resurrection from the dead. And one of the strange things that happens throughout the Gospels and throughout the, the work of the apostles that you'll find the, the opponents of Jesus Christ always kind of stand on this un, unstable ground where Jesus and his apostles are always un, unwavering in their, in their preaching. Because what happens to this people that are, of course, going to lose to the power of the Gospel, they're always divided along the way. So these men that were just moments before, days before also, united in Paul must die. Now, the simple declaration of it's on a theological ground that I stand before you today. Watch them divide and completely go different ways. You'll see verse 9, a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party it stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So with one swift sentence, you see what Paul has done. He's essentially told... You need to recognize the background, the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, he's in charge of things there. He, he said this whole dispute, this whole argument, it rests on the theological interpretation of the resurrection of the dead. It's why they hate me. Now, of course, you can see in our passage today, it's a very general statement that he makes about the hope of the resurrection of the dead. It's not this kind of gospel preaching of a, of a risen Christ that's shown up in other parts of the book. Uh, but we, we do know, don't we, that it's, it's the gospel of, of resurrection that back then and even today it continues to divide people. Uh, for it, it's true that nothing is so fantastic in its fiction today that Christians gather to praise a resurrected king. That what we preach is the good news of resurrection the Lord Jesus Christ, that he, he died on this cursed cross there in Jerusalem at Mount Calvary, bearing the punishment and sin, sin's penalty that his people deserved. And three days later, after being buried in that tomb, he, he rose again from the dead, God's perfect power displayed in his life, so that therefore Jesus Christ is now the risen king that offers hope, that offers new life because he has conquered sin, Satan, and death. It's why the book of Revelation can paint this glorious portrait of Jesus. And students, if you know anything about that passage in Revelation 1, it says that Jesus is holding something in his hand, which are the keys of death and Hades. Because of his victory over the grave, he now owns death. And therefore, there's a time coming at the end of the age, oh, and he's going to unlock every grave that has ever been put into existence. And for Christians, for those that look to the Lord Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith, that unlocking of the grave is the greatest sound they're ever going to hear, isn't it? Because it's this welcome of resurrection life for all eternity to the Father's right hand in heaven. Blessedness, happiness, rest and rejoicing for all eternity. But it's a terrifying thing if you like Ananias, you like so many of these religious leaders in Jerusalem, reject Jesus Christ, one day hearing at that last day, your grave begin to click. Because it's a summons not to everlasting life, but everlasting torment, everlasting agony for your rejection of Jesus Christ. 
a resurrection hope that's found in Jesus. It continues to divide people today. And I wonder on what part of that divide you fall. Lysias realizes what's going on, doesn't he? He notices verse 10 became so violent. He's afraid Paul's going to be torn to pieces. So he takes him back to the barracks. He brings him once again into safety, trying to calm down the disorder there in Jerusalem. So God is sovereign over the opposition. He's sovereign over the declaration. I want you to see now that he's sovereign over the destination in verse 11. So we don't know exactly how many hours would have passed between when Paul went again into the barracks and what we're told in verse 11 happened the following night. Uh, But kids, I'm sure you you could sympathize with an interpretation that would say Paul was clearly uh, worried, that there was some degree of anxiety there in his prison cell. You know, he he had understood the Holy Spirit said, Paul, you got to go to Jerusalem. You got to take this offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem that you gathered from Gentile churches. You got to go to Jerusalem, even though you know trouble is going to await you there. And ever since he's been in Jerusalem, trouble has been at every turn from inside and outside of the church. Multiple times he's nearly been killed. Multiple times he's been made to stand and give a defense for his life. And maybe he's thinking there in that moment, am I ever going to get out alive? And you see, Jesus says, yeah, you will. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The end is not here, Paul. I've got something else that you must do. Of course, I don't know if uh, you've ever been in a metaphorical prison uh, before a metaphorical mob in a way that Paul was before a literal prison or in a literal prison and before a literal mob. But uh, the reality of Christ's sovereignty here is that what he's telling us in the same way that he's sovereign over the destination of Paul, where Paul's life is going to go. I trust that you know today that he is sovereign over the destination of every one of his people. That he's got the end already discerned. Take comfort in the fact he's got it also decreed. He's taking you exactly where he wants you to go. He's sovereign of the opposition, declaration, destination. I notice quite quickly now he's sovereign over the protection. In verse 23 through the end of chapter 23. Uh, The great missionary to India and Persia in the 19th century was a man named Henry Martin. And he one time, when when facing opposition, one time when when facing hardship and being able to stand in the face of such difficulty with such unwavering courage, someone kind of asked, you know, Henry, how are you so strong in the midst of all of this uh, calamity? And he said something to the effect of, I am immortal until I do what God has said I must do. And we know that's true, don't we, of the Apostle Paul. He's got to get to Rome. Therefore, as we would understand it reverently in verse 23 and following, this plot hatched against him is utterly pointless because Paul's immortal. You'll see uh, what happens in the rest of our text. I'm sorry, verse 12, as the text continues. uh, He he finds out from his nephew that there's a plot out to kill him. Forty people in uh, Jerusalem have taken this vow. It's really a terrorist vow, isn't it? They're not going to eat anything. They're not going to drink anything uh, until uh, Paul is killed. 
And then the nephew comes and says this to Paul, and Paul says, well, you got to have to take that now uh, to the Roman tribune, and notice what the nephew says to Claudius Lysias in verse 20 and 21. He says, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So he lets Claudius Lysias in on the plot. And you'll notice verse 23 through the end of the passage, basically what Lysias decides to do, because he's got to keep law and order there in Jerusalem, he's essentially going to take Paul to the next higher up in the Roman structure of government. He gathers this huge force, according to the first century expectations at the time, to ensure Paul's going to make it all the way to Caesarea so he can meet with a governor named Felix, Claudius Lysias, writes a letter to kind of explain everything that's going on with this man named Paul. And you'll see when he gets to Caesarea, Paul with this Roman guard, what we're told in verse 33 through 35, they'd come to Caesarea, delivered Claudius' letter to the governor, and they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, you remember that's a city of repute and renown in the ancient world, Felix says, I'll give you a hearing. When your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. You see that God even uses pagan governments, unbelievers, to guard his people, to safeguard his servants. Uh, That God's promise to his people to complete his plan with them. He'll use whatever means he needs to in order to protect them, in order to keep them safe. I wonder how maybe this week you might find courage in God's sovereignty that no matter the opposition, no matter the declaration, no matter that destination, no matter the protection, he's going to ensure that his purpose in you will come to its faithful completion. Uh, Some weeks ago I was talking with one of our boys about what they had been learning in school that day and somehow... Uh, the work of Robert Louis Stevenson came up, particularly this book that he wrote that some of you may remember called Treasure Island. And it reminded me of a story of, of the young boy, Stevenson, when he was growing up in Scotland. It was a time before there was electricity. And there was one evening when he was out and about in the city, and what happened back then is when you lit up the lamps, these street lights at night, you had to hire, the Scottish government did, had to hire someone to go light each one hand by hand, one by one. So he watched as someone was lighting the lights on the street. You know, they would take their ladder and they would set it before the light and he would climb up the ladder, take off the cover, light the lamp, put the cover back on, climb back down the ladder, fold it back up again, just move a few feet to the left or to the right and uh, repeat the process as each lamp, each light began to be lit. And the story says that he looked over to his mother in that moment in altogether uh, amazement and he said something like, look, mama, The light is punching holes in the darkness. And of course, we stand in a room today, sit in a room today, with light everywhere pouring in through windows. Uh, But it certainly can mask the reality of many of you stand in here, sit in here, surrounded by the darkness of sorrow, the darkness of sin, uh, the darkness uh, of suffering, Many of you sit in here today and what you need is the gospel punching holes with its light 
into the darkness? And how is it that God's children in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of whatever darkness they're facing can take courage? Well, you take courage in God's sovereignty in two particular ways, and I want you to see this as we begin to close. Because if you look back at verse 11, that central verse in our text, I want you to see, first of all, that we must take courage in Christ's sovereign presence. Courage in Christ's sovereign presence. Don't, don't just race past that first part of the verse where it says the following night, the Lord stood by Paul. Uh, many of you parents and even grandparents can recall vividly, no doubt, the times when you've been caring for a young child, a young grandchild, and some harm has come to them. They begin to scream in agony. And usually, they don't stay put, do they? What do they do? They go run to wherever you are because you're standing next to them. That, that presence, it begins to calm the heart. It begins to encourage the soul. Some of you might even think today, you know, if in the midst of my darkness, if the Lord Jesus Christ would come, just stand next to me. Oh, yeah, of course I could take courage. Uh, but do you know in the promise of the gospel that he is already currently, right now, standing next to you? Uh, Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He is God with us. That he announced to his disciples when he departed to heaven, behold, even though physically I'm in heaven, I am with you to the end of the age. Uh, whatever darkness you might be facing, the Lord is standing right there. The supply of abundant, never-ending, amazing grace and power in order to bring you the light, the hope in his sovereignty. Number two, what we see, of course, is not just that we're to take courage in Christ's sovereign presence, but a courage in Christ's sovereign purpose. He says, doesn't he, to Paul, you must testify in Rome. There's this divine imperative. There's this divine initiative. You must get to Rome. Proclamation, Paul, it's your purpose. Testifying, that's your task. Telling the truth about me, that's what you must do. And I'm going to guarantee that you get there. Now, of course, none of us in the room have that same commission, do we? To preach the gospel in Rome, to testify to the truth there in the center of the imperial empire, capital of the known world at the time. But, but do you know that you have a multitude of divine musts in your life? A multitude of perspectives on God's sovereign purpose in your life. We've seen a few of them already in the book of Acts, haven't we? You must, through many trials and tribulations, enter into the kingdom of heaven. As you have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, you must also forgive others. Pay all the more careful attention to what you have heard. You must do this, lest you drift from it. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You must pray, not as the hypocrites do. You must follow me faithfully. I know the end, and I'm going to get you there. And recognize even for Paul the courage that this meant for his life. In a way that's different, surely, for you and me. The end for Paul's life is death in Rome. You're going to die relatively young, Paul. You're going to die a horrible death on account of me, Paul. But take courage. I'm with you. Take courage, Paul. I'm sending you. Take courage. I'm going to complete my purpose for your life. I doubt any of us in the room have received a, a sovereign commission from Jesus Christ to 
die a martyr's death. But you might have to live a life full of unceasing difficulty and consistent suffering. Does he not say the same thing to you? Take courage. I'm with you. Take courage. I'm sending you. Take courage. I'll be faithful to complete the good work that I've already done in you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask indeed that you would encourage us this morning. Father, even the strongest of saints like the Apostle Paul need the encouraging word of Jesus Christ. And so we who gather in this room much more meek, much lower even in faith, need the encouragement of your spirit and your word this day. So we pray that you would raise our gaze to Jesus Christ, that we would know he is standing right next to us, and that we would find that great comfort and courage in him. And we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we do respond to God's word, turning in the hymnal once again to number 689 as we sing our hymn of response, Be Still My Soul.